Hey guys, Barry Mangadidi here, back for another episode of the Comeback Game podcast. Today I'm pretty stoked to have JP Sears. JP's a YouTuber, comedian, emotional healing coach, author, speaker, world traveler, and curious student of life. His work empowers people to live more meaningful lives. JP is also the author of How to Be Ultra Spiritual, uh, Soundstrip Publishing, and he's very active with his online videos where he encourages healing and growth through his humorous and entertainingly informative videos, including his hit Ultra Spiritual Comedy Series, which have accumulated more than 300 million views. JP, mate, how are you doing today? I'm good, Barry. I'm, I'm better after hearing that bio because you didn't share anything crappy about me, which is cool. <laughs> like we can start pretending that doesn't exist. Like I'm just like, I'm glorious now, according to me, according to you. Well, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like after to watching your stuff for a while, I'm kind of wondering what's true. And I, I suppose what I'd say is it doesn't matter what's true, only what people believe is true because with work that becomes true anyway right well uh, i'm compelled to say that's true because you ended your sentence with right with a question and i feel compelled to like people please you and support you and and, and validate that so yeah it's definitely true yeah and 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 what do you think that you'd call a nun wearing a wig that's a good question give me a quick 45 minutes to feel into that Wig nun, nun wig. I, I'm blanking, brother. None of your business, but hey. <laughs> Come on now. That was good. That was good. Oh, mate, so look, uh, pretty pumped, as I said. Like, I think we spoke earlier that you, you haven't been in, uh, currently I'm in Perth, Western Australia. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I, uh, at my home in Austin, Texas, in the Austin. U.S., and you said it's been a, a short, hot while since you've been in Perth. What, like 10, 11 years now? Yeah, by my math, which is, oh, God only knows, about nine years. So it was June, early June 2009 when I was in Perth. Yeah. And look, I had to fly all the way to, to, to Toronto, Canada, to, to kind of find you and, uh, and get you on the show. So I'm pretty pumped to be sharing a bit more about you and I suppose uh, maybe some of the adversities that you've, you've, you've faced uh, to be where you are like uh, you know you've obviously cre created a massive movement online uh, your stuff is <laughs> incredibly hilarious uh, do you laugh at your own jokes yeah well first off thank you for your kind words brother and and I usually don't laugh at my own jokes and uh, yet I'll say they amuse me or else I wouldn't be saying them but it's kind of like you know how if you try to tickle yourself you know, you're, you're not really going to like squirm away because you have such a sense of control. You know where your fingers are going. Whereas like someone else tickles you, there's a sense of not being in control, which creates the physiological reaction of being tickled and you know, like try to get away. I think laughter is pretty similar. We have to be blindsided to some degree in order to laugh. And it might be just like a little surprise, like you know, a punchline of a joke takes like a 15 degree turn relative to what we thought was coming. Or it's like a dramatic term. Yeah. But if I'm, if I'm speaking a joke, even if I'm being spontaneous and it's just coming up right now in the moment, even like at least for a half a millisecond, I'll know what's going to come out of my mouth. So it's almost like trying to tickle myself, but make no mistake. I'm, I would say I'm very amused with what I say. And I don't know if that goes down to like, I'm a narcissist. Like, of course I'm amused with everything I say, 
but yeah, I, I love it. And, and to me, the, one of the bigger amusing parts, I'm just going to ramble here for about two and a half hours. No, let's, where let's, I feel let's do like this. Yeah. But one of the things that also really amuses me is watching other people laugh. And sometimes their reactions, be it laughter or confusion, sometimes that will make me laugh. So it's like a secondhand laughter at my own jokes. Where did it all start though? Like, like to just wake up one, one morning and decide that you're a YouTube star and you could make people laugh or, or tickle them from all angles? That was the thing. I realized my true identity my, as I got enlightened under the Bodhi tree. I said, I am a YouTube star, even though I've never made a YouTube video. <laughs> that would have been fun because like I just had this sense of certainty the whole time. It wouldn't have been scary. But no, but rewinding a bit, I'll give you, it'll be a, a long timeline of the story, but I'll hit it briefly. Yeah just to create the full picture. I think it, it all started in childhood as it does because as a kid, humor is how I coped with my pain, my insecurities, you know, which I think we all have. We're all part of the human condition. And, you know, I, I wasn't equipped to know how to deal with insecurities vulnerably or really courageously. Like I'm scared right now. So let me sit here and process this nope not in my vocabulary so if I felt insecure felt maybe insignificant about myself then a way I would compensate for that is I'd read people and start making them laugh then they're laughing I see them laughing they're smiling at me which makes me feel like I matter which makes me feel like I'm significant so mm -hmm. thus for you know, two minutes at a time, I escaped the feeling of insignificance, low mm. self-worth inside of me. So that got me a lot of repetitions with humor, both reading people, what's going to make this person laugh, and then figuring out a delivery for it. Mm. And also to keep it real, that humor as a child also brought a lot of joy to my life. I mean, it wasn't just like some dysfunctional psychological coping mechanism. I think it was very functional too. And then fast forwarding probably a couple decades or so, I'm doing life coaching. I'm working with people doing emotional healing, work with them and teaching classes and retreats around the world. That's what took me to Perth in 2009. Really awesome work. Yet mm. while I'm doing the life coaching work, I'm telling myself a story that says, my humor would be bad for business you know, as an immature and you can't be playful. You kind of got to be Eckhart Tolle, like you should be serious. And, and that wasn't, that was a betrayal of myself. I mean, I, I think I was still doing very purposeful work. I was getting a lot out of it. Hopefully people I was working with did too, but finally, finally, finally in Early October 2014, I had to stop betraying myself. I kept having these ideas come to me about like, ooh, I could do this comedy video, you know, convey this message through the language of humor. And at the time, I had been doing just life advice YouTube videos for about a year and a half. I think that's why I was thinking like I could do this in a comedy video. Yeah. 
So I thought, well, you know, this is still going to be bad for business, but I can't not do it. So, you know, the fear inside the stories of this is going to be bad for business, discredit me. You know, I no longer was I avoiding that fear. I was just going into it. It's like, yeah, I'm going to make the comedy video. And it's scary because I think it won't be good. I think worse yet, it'll be bad for business. But I made it anyway. And and once I put it out and people start to see it, I felt very affirmed. And I, I realize that's a little codependent, but still I felt very affirmed and something awakened in me like this creative satisfaction that I hadn't known before. So after I had put that first one out a little while later, I thought, hmm, maybe I can do a, another one. Mm. And so another one became another other one. And then it became like, I like this. Let me keep doing this. And then it became just a very regular staple of what I do, what I offer. And then that regular staple of comedy videos eventually opened up just amazing, beautiful doors of opportunity to connect with people through humor and sincere messages. Um, is just kind of beyond my dream. In fact, that's you and I meeting in Toronto. I was there speaking at an event, just a beautiful event. And that door opened up through videos. So yeah, brother, that's a little snapshot well, I, of the journey. I think it's even more than that though, because I think that the videos are a vehicle, right? But you know, once one thing I see a lot is that that as human beings, like we take ourselves way too seriously. And there's this conditioning where we're consciously or unconsciously worried too much about what other people think. And it kind of comes from that reptilian brain function, that part of us that wants to belong, you know, and, and fit in the, the two main functions, reproduction and a sense of belonging. But, you know, what it's kind of created in the society in many ways is, is this conscious or unconscious of, of us that feels like we need to lie to fit in. And it's yeah. not like we're consciously going out there and betraying people or lying to fit in. But unconsciously, we're almost conditioned in such a way that doesn't allow us to be ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really curious to understand, like, what was it actually like for you to bridge that gap? It's like you, you talk, talk, talked about the laughter and the comedy and stuff. Uh, in the beginning was a way of you coping with your childhood, you know, and everyone as kids, it's like the belief patterns that so many life coaches try to like rip out of people, a pattern that's created out of safety. It's, it's patterning yeah. that at some point in our life has actually created us some form of, of positive outcome. It's just as a 30 or 40 year old, what kept us safe as three or four kind of doesn't have the same effect anymore, quite the opposite. Yeah. Uh, you know, what was it like for you to kind of really move past all of that and put yourself out there uh, in a space where, where really you had to be seen because you spoke before about it you know, the videos as open doors, but I think it's more around your authenticity. And it's interesting because there's a lot of, lot of humor and taking the piss, right? Yeah. But in that you are being authentic to an aspect of you. So what was yeah. it like to into you? Yeah, first off, I just have to say, I think you're, the context you create around that, what you ended in a question, I think that's so wise. I just want to just pump my fist at that is so wise. And do we lie? Yes, of course, not necessarily intentional, deceiving yeah. lie, but we're not being ourselves when we're being who we think we need to be in order to get approval, to appease our need for safety, security, a sense of belonging. 
like without realizing it sleight of hand, like, yeah, we, we eventually realize we're, we're I'm living a lie. Yeah. Like I'm not being myself. I'm being who I think others want me to be. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm defiant, then I'm being the opposite of who I think others want me to be. And thus I fit in through rejection, which becomes a perpetual pattern. So it's familiar. Really? So I get comfortable yeah. through the discomfort of that because it's familiar. So man, I think that's just so wise. And I think it was something I'll, I'll, I'll say, it's easy for me to say in hindsight and talking about my story, I, I didn't have any cognition of this while I was going through it, at least in this part of my journey with the, the comedy and videos. Yeah, looking back, what I can say is what's been important to me is to scare myself. Because I, I think that I would dare say one of the keys, if not the biggest keys to living a successful life, both in terms of outer success, like whatever that means to you, but more significantly in terms of inner fulfillment, the biggest key, according to delusional me, is scare yourself. And I think when we scare ourselves, that's the sensation of breaking out of the psychological scar tissue that is the approval addiction, that is the orient our lives around getting approval so we can have that sense of belonging. So when we're scared, it's like, ooh, uh, I, I don't get that. And, and that doesn't mean we're going to die, even though that reptilian brain you talked about, like it's, it's got like, okay, seek approval so you can sit in, so fit in, so you can survive. It's built to make us survive. And when we look at most of us present day, like we're not living in an indigenous way in a tribe. So we're, our life doesn't really depend on keeping the approval of everyone around us. Mm. In fact, I think the way we live is that is what can end our life, at least metaphorically, you know, we never let ourselves really live. So I think, excuse me, I'm getting a little choked up. I think we live in a time of self-realization, not self-preservation. Yeah. I think the mantra for self-preservation says avoid fear. Mm. And that makes sense. The purpose of your life in in a moment is avoid death. Mm. stay alive, self-preservation, then it's like, cool, don't feel afraid because if you're feeling afraid, there's some kind of threat around you. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But if you're listening to this podcast, then I would bet my bile duck, you're not really needing to dictate your life around self-preservation. You're probably one of the fortunate people on planet Earth that self-realization is uh, where you're at. So with self-realization, being scared, I think, is what gives us life. Self-preservation, being scared is what feels like it takes our life away. So I think the willingness to scare oneself is so important. And looking back on my journey, that's, that's what allowed me to break new ground within myself, become more authentic. Like, yes, this comedian, it's a part of me. I'm going to let it out professionally, not just in my personal life. And then, you know, I'm doing that. And then, you know, opportunity to do 
like think write a book live comedy shows i was like oh each of those scares me mm. yet i wasn't in a self-preservation mindset that says i have to avoid being scared which means i have to avoid doing the thing that scares me instead i was fortunate to be in a self-realization mindset that says oh wow comedy shows like that 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 feels exciting and purposeful and it scares me, but because it's both, it's a yes. Let me do yeah. it. Yeah, well, so that, oh, sorry, sorry, you go. I was just going to say that willingness to be scared when it feels purposeful and take action anyway has been, uh, that's been my lifeblood. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. And I think, you know, like in reflection too, we talk about creature neurology and, and the self-preservation aspect and, you know, a lot's changed since we're cavemen. Uh, I haven't noticed. I thought cavemen... Probably, had... with, this, probably with this. I'm actually going to take this off. I'm, I'm cooking. <laughs> Remember who but, I, and I, I apologize for interrupting. Of course, hell yeah, a lot's changed since we were cavemen. Yeah, well, you know, and in many ways too, like that, that, that reptilian brain had a function like our belief systems when it was created, but we're not, you know, getting chased by dinosaurs anymore. You know, like a lot's changed in life. And I, I just love how you've, you've framed that and come with that realization yourself as well is that, you know, like we, we're in a special time where we have the opportunity to seek the things that, that, that scare us or that scare a part of us with the fact that, you know, we're not going to necessarily die. Like obviously we're not talking about going and cliff jumping without a parachute, right? We're talking about sure. speaking on stage or writing a book. And I think this is where a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs get, get caught up as they get too stuck inside of their own mind around the as, ands, ifs and buts and the perception of what could possibly happen rather than just going out there and giving it, giving it a go. Yeah. And on, uh, amen to that. And on that note, on the entrepreneurial business owner scene, I think one of the, one of the temptations of playing it safe is let me meet people's expectations, which is just another way of saying, let me get their approval. Now in business that will pay a certain amount of currency. You know, you meet people's expectations, like here's a car. Let's pretend like what entrepreneurs are making cars, but crappy analogy. But anyway, let, let's just say, here's a car. This is like a very average car it really excels at meeting your expectations. So you essentially get the customer's approval. You're going to sell a certain amount of cars mm. because you're oriented as an entrepreneur around getting people's approval, meeting their expectations. Yeah. That's playing it safe. Nothing wrong with that. I think people can reach a certain level of success with that. Mm. And I think people will not go beyond a certain level of success with that. Because then you start to look at like, okay, if I am, if I'm oriented around meeting people's expectations, then that means I'm not going to be exceeding their expectations. It means I'm not going to be innovating. It means I'm not going to be taking a risk of doing or being something so new that it will just create a wild movement around me. I mean, you kind of like take a look at one of the archetypes like Elon Musk, like, cool, he's making these cars that exceed people's expectations. He doesn't meet people's expectations. I mean, he's just, 
he's, I don't know if he's all there mentally. He's just some kind of another level, socially awkward, whatever kind of guy. And that's allowed him to excel. He hasn't excelled because he's great at meeting people's expectations. He's excelled because he doesn't worry about people's expectations. I'm just hypothesizing right now, which allows him to take a risk, which then allows the payoff to be he exceeds people's expectations. Now, the funny thing about a risk is that eventually it, it will bite us. You know, if you keep taking risks, they're not all going to work out. Nobody's going to have a batting average of a thousand percent. So sometimes we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get people's disapproval. We'll put ourselves out there free from like, let me just be the entrepreneur playing it safe meeting expectations. And then sometimes a market or customers are going to reject us like, shit, Oh, they really didn't like that. But the payoff is at other times we allow our real gifts a chance to see the light of day, which means we give our community or customers our potential customers a chance to see our real gifts and it's very risky and at the same time i think we owe it to ourselves to allow some of that to come out of us some of the time yeah and and i and i feel as well that that our that our real gifts are within those failures too all those times that we do make those mistakes because yeah. you know i think that that out of those we have an opportunity to learn but even more than that like even more than that the whole throwaway life coaching line there's no failure only feedback or let's go let's go a step deeper than that because the way that we perceive a situation is going to allow us to to filter in the experiences that they lead on from that what are you drinking there looks like muddy salt water <laughs> bulletproof coffee oh nice what time is it there that we're in about 10 30 a.m oh beautiful nice yeah yeah, so, so if, we, if we're perceiving a situation labelled as bad or labelled as a failure, we're then setting our filters up of, of, yeah. of life and of reality to filter in experiences that allow us to justify that experience of us to be correct. Because if you look from a space of cognitive dissonance, is that we're always wanting to prove ourselves right. Like we have to prove ourselves right. And if we're seeing something not as a mistake or not as a failure, but simply as a step along the way of our journey in life, we therefore filter in more opportunities and more situations. And I believe that, you know, what sets the people apart, you know, what sets those top five to 1% of people that succeed in business and life. And as you said before, like success is whatever success is for you. Success might be being at home at three o'clock every afternoon to spend the evening with your partner and your kids. You know, success might be being able to buy that Ferrari or, or travel around the world, like whatever it is. But, you know, I think that, that uh, you know, it really comes down to how we're perceiving situations and how we're, we're taking on board that information along the way and, and the assumptions that we make or the decisions that we make. Because the moment we make those decisions, we, we limit ourselves to the possibilities that are there in front of us. I, I think you're right. And that shift of perspective that can be the difference between like, oh, this sucked and I didn't learn anything versus this might've sucked and I learned a lot and that becomes the, the, the seed that is a gift mm. uh, of a, a, a greater expression rather than a curse. I think perspective is very powerful with that. And I think a mistake I make at times, I certainly made it a bunch in the past and still at times it'll come up. 
when something feels bad, it's easy for me to trick myself into believing it is bad. Mm. But I, I think when we look at the fact that we're very emotional beings, I think especially like in the entrepreneurial scene, we like to pretend like we don't have emotions. We're just bodies and minds. But the truth is we have emotions. So when we have a quote unquote failure, that feels bad. Like, well, the sting of rejection, maybe shame and it is self-criticism. Like, oh, that feels bad. Mm -hmm. And we can also trick ourselves into believing that because something feels bad, it is bad for us. But I think that's the trick of the ego. I think that's being governed by the self-preservation mentality, but the self-realization mentality that's geared around helping us expand and thrive in life says, if something feels bad, it's probably good for you. Mm. I, I think there's a little bit of a paradoxical law of growth in life. When something feels bad in the short term, oftentimes that actually is so good for us. Like yeah. you think about it, you're doing a workout, you're lifting weights. It's like, a certain level, that's what feels bad, like lactic acid building up. Oh, muscle or, fiber know, breaking. Say that again. Muscle fiber breaking. 100%. Yeah. But we know that's actually good. But if you avoid that feeling bad, if the sh perspective was like, oh, that felt bad, that's bad for me. I'm not going to work out again because that's bad for me. Yeah. Or, you know, let's say someone breaks up with you, like that feels terrible. Yet if you allow your feelings of grief to come up, you get over that breakup so much faster. Yeah. But if you say, oh, those feelings feel bad, I'm not going to let myself feel them, I'm going to disconnect from it, I'm going to distract myself, then avoiding feeling bad becomes very bad for you. And I think when we look at the other side of that coin, what feels really good in the short term is oftentimes bad for us. Yeah. You know, you think like, okay, it feels great to go have six beers with my buddies, it feels really good in the short term. But the long term, like, I don't know about yourself. I don't know if I'm getting old, but I'll, I'd feel that for three more days. Yes. I, I really um, so with that said, I, I think that that paradoxical law of growth, what feels bad in the short term is oftentimes good for us. Uh, it is something I like to keep it in my mind to help me shape my perspective so I don't start to demonize the blessings that show up that are actually points of growth, points of learning, the failures that are ultimately some of the best feedback. Yeah. Like, like when in life are we conditioned that uh, we should strive to be happy all the time or we should strive to be joyful all the time? It's like, I kind of see that our emotions, you know, we've been given a smorgasbord of emotions, yeah. right? We've got a whole entire platter to choose from. Like it'd be pretty boring if we just chose happiness all the time. Let's be honest, you know, but what, what some, allows some would say we couldn't even experience our happiness if we were happy all the time. Hashtag relative world. Yeah. Well, there's no, there's no contrast, right? Yeah. There's no contrast. And I like what you shared too. It's like, if we're not able to, I wouldn't say accept, but, but allow ourselves the pleasure of experiencing both sides of the coin. We don't have contrast. Yeah. You know, if it was always light outside, we'd, we would never know the darkness. Yeah. And that would be terrible for earth and the people on it. If it was always light outside, like all the, the plant life would eventually die because the plant life is engineered 
through nature, like it needs a certain amount of darkness, too much sunlight will burn it out. And we have probably too much water evaporation. So you can just extend the analogy and realize like, if it was always light, that would eventually kill us. Yeah. And I think we can, we actually, uh, we can really kill ourselves, at least metaphorically, by trying to make it always light. And I think we play tricks on ourselves because when we try to make it always light, always be happy, unfortunately, it doesn't even mean we're always happy. A lot of times we're in denial. We're wearing a facade of happiness, which is so different than real happiness in an effort to try to avoid the dark. One of my my favorite quotes, a Swiss psychologist uh, named Carl Jung, he died, I think, in 1963, so a super well-known dude. He said, enlightenment isn't found by imagining the light. It's found by becoming conscious of the darkness. Hmm. And what that really means to me, I mean, I think it can mean so many things, but in this moment, it means like the things we kind of judge to be dark about ourselves, the, the fears, the discomforts that come up, like that's the real gift. That's what allows us to grow and expand as people and business people as well. Yeah. I remember one of my, uh, one of my spiritual teachers said to me one stage, he's like, Barry, you know, the challenge is not that you get angry. He's like, the challenge is that you get angry, that you get angry. And then you get angry that you got angry, that you got angry. And he's like, you know, and I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, it's like this. He's like, you're driving down the road in your car and you get a flat tire. And so you pull over to change the tire. And instead of changing it, you pull out your knife and pop the other three tires. That's such a good analogy. And it just rang true to me. I was like, man, he's like, he's like, we're human beings. We have emotions inside. And when we get squeezed, when life squeezes, those emotions come out. But rather than allowing ourselves to then choose how we, how we wish to feel again, we end up judging those emotions, making them wrong and stacking a whole bunch more on top of them, which is actually what causes the, ma- the major jam- damage within us. Not the yeah. fact that we choose to get angry over something that, that's, that spiked a, a frame of emotion. Yeah. Amen to that. I, I think those are words to live by. And, and I judge them to be very wise because I agree with them. That's yeah. how I judge if something's wise. It's like, yeah, I agree with that. That's definitely wise. <laughs> but it, it's so true. And I think the beauty is, you know, when you're angry, whatever the emotion is, like, welcome to being a human being. When, you, yeah. when you're angry, when you allow yourself to process and feel that, that original anger, you digest it. You, yeah. you get over it in a, a shorter period of time. But then if you don't do that, okay, you're angry. Then as he said, you get angry at yourself for being angry. Then you're angry at yourself for being angry at yourself for being angry. And, and that keeps you in the, the anger energy longer because you keep avoiding the original anger through new emotional reactions to the emotion. And then you react to that emotional reaction, which makes us psychologically constipated. We don't have psychological bowel movements, but if you're angry and you let yourself be angry, then when you're being angry, expressing it in a healthy way, we're not saying go abuse other people, but when you let yourself feel it, oh, then you're having the emotional bowel movement. And we all know, you know, being constipated, it can eat us alive inside. Yeah. Letting it out. I mean, it's a poopy endeavor. 
I mean, I don't like to be angry. It, it makes me feel crappy at my judge. I'm in, immature. Yeah. But it's better to have the poop coming out rather than keeping it on the inside. We're, uh, we're simplistically complex as human beings <laughs> and perfectly imperfect, right? Absolutely. So let's, let's talk spiritual evolution. So what I've noticed over the last 10 or 12 years, right? I remember like 12 years ago, I started meditating and uh, I used to tell people that I was, I was going on this journey and I was trying to, to connect with my spiritual side and uh, people thought I was a dope smoking hippie yeah. and they probably, they probably weren't far wrong back at that stage in life. And you know, what I've noticed, what I've noticed a lot is over the last few years, it's become like the thing, yeah. right? Everyone's seeking meditation or some form of spiritual enlightenment and everyone's becoming a spiritual guru online. What's causing this? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, that won't stop me from having an opinion yet. Realistically, <laughs> I don't know. I can't speak to it with any level of certainty yet. I can speak to it with a level of curiosity through my opinions. And, you know, I, I think we live in a world where our basic needs are so well met that it is safe and appropriate for us to start seeking spiritual expansion, you know, self-preservation when that, when we're physically safe to a certain degree, it becomes actually safe to go into the self-realization, spiritual expansion. Most people who live in a first world country are, even if they're at the bottom of the economic bracket, they're pretty well taken care of. Yeah. Now, if someone's living in the, you know, outback of Australia, that might be a different story where your physical needs are maybe not so well taken care of that you need to keep your life and psychological energy devoted to where's my next meal going to come from, got to protect myself. So I think that's a big part of it. I think we've, and as a part of it, I think we've also as a society lived through enough of what we don't want that we're starting to wake up to what we do want. And I think what we don't want is such a, that's what teaches us what we do want. And and I think what we've proven we don't want is to fill ourselves up with material possessions, money, and accomplishments. We've learned we don't want that because we can't do it. We, no matter how much money we make, how much status we get, no matter how many Ferraris, those stay on the outside. It, it unfortunately doesn't create any inner fulfillment. I mean, it can be fun. It can contribute to a little happiness. It uh, might be also gratifying, but inner fulfillment is something different. So we've learned like, oh, I don't want to make the purpose of my life acquiring money and status anymore because it doesn't give me the result that my heart is truly seeking because it simply can't. Yeah. It's like, you know, trying to start a fire with water. Eh, you can't do it. So I, I think through however many hundreds of years, decades, whatever it is, that that has truly been the pursuit of our lives. 
we've done that enough to realize, oh, that's not what I want. What I do want, you're like, cool, I, I, I want some material needs taken care of. Maybe I'll even have an abundance of that. Like, whatever, that's secondary. But what I really do want is a feeling inside that makes me feel like I matter. Mm-hmm. I want a feeling inside that makes me feel this intangible sense of purpose, yet it's really freaking real because it's a, a feeling. What I really want is a sense of connection to maybe something beyond me and certainly the people in my life that matters most to me. So I think we as a society, from my delusional point of view, are learning that's what we do want. Mm. And I think the pursuit of what we truly want inside, not what gratifies our ego on the outside, but what true we truly want on the inside, we can attain those things through the genre of uh, growth called spirituality. And, you know, somewhat, you know, depending on how you angle it, sometimes they'll call it self-development, spirituality, philosophy. It, it doesn't matter what it's called, but I, I definitely vibe with the term spirituality. So anyway, Barry, that's my delusional opinion. And I'm also curious your opinion about the same question. Oh, boom. Well, firstly, like that was a phenomenal answer. Like when you, I was like, where's he going to go with this one? And what you opened up with was brilliant, like nicely, nicely done. I don't know how far we go. Like this could ruin my career. (laughs) We did joke about that before. I, th- I think as a whole, like as, as, a, as, a, as a consciousness, we're evolving uh, and things are changing, things that we don't yet fully understand as human beings. And I kind of feel that, that, that everyone is born with this spiritual heart. And, you know, you've only got to look at, look at newborn babies or kids. It's like they, they have this knowing, this innate knowing, the difference between right and wrong and good and bad. And at which point they've never been taught or educated they're too young to have created the brain. And even if you look at the way that babies are formed inside their mother's womb, it's like that, that heart is formed first before the brain. Mm. And so I think in many ways, like we are connected with something bigger, whether you want to call it God, whether you want to call it universal energy, but let's be honest, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that there is something else out there other than us. Like how the hell can this thing called our heart pump blood every second of every day of our life for, 80, 90, 100 years, if you're lucky, without needing a recharge yeah. or someone to change the batteries or a, a solar power on top of your head. Like there's just things that we don't, I think we don't yet know uh, from a scientific or from a humanistic perspective. But yeah. I kind of see that people are kind of, uh, I don't know, there's an awakening happening. It's like they're becoming more conscious of, of their heart or that connection to divinity, that connection to energy. And, uh, you know, do I have any fancy scientific research to back it up? No, not yet. There's, there's some buddies of mine that are doing uh, a lot of things at the moment with uh, testing different forms of meditation through EEG scams, MRIs, and noticing significant changes uh, in cancer cells in petri dishes that are being meditated upon over a short period of time. But there's research that, that, that some buddies of mine are putting together that's just mind boggling. But I think if you look, look back 10 years ago as a society, we weren't ready for that. 
You know, we were still so in pursuit of those materialistic possessions you spoke about to gain a sense of belonging. And I think that we've kind of almost done a, 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 a circle in such a way, as you mentioned, that we start to realize that that doesn't give us what we perceive that it will. The belonging we're looking yeah. for is not belonging to a herd. It's belonging to self and it's belonging to something far greater, or far bigger than what you or I are. So I don't know how well I've gone to answer that question. I didn't expect to get asked it, but it's just my feeling is people are awakening. And, and, you know, I have so many conversations with people now that feel things that are changing. It wasn't the way 10 years ago. And you could say, well, you know, maybe I wasn't open enough to having those conversations, but I think the conversations that, that, that my parents were having and your parents were having were very different to the conversations yeah. that we're having today. You know, theirs were a lot more based around potentially survival and, and, you know, looking after their children and so forth. And yeah. like you said, it's like even at the bottom of the socioeconomic cycle, it's like we're pretty well taken care of these days. We are. And, and I think there's a interesting reflection of the, the outer progression of technology. You know, the, I, I forget the exact numbers that I've been told. So just know this won't be quite right, but it's something like the, you know, the technology, the capacity of technology, like it doubles just mind bogglingly fast, like every 13 months or something ridiculous like that. And I just get curious, what if that's uh, an outer reflection of what we're doing on the inside? Now, not to glorify technology, I think people can really get lost in it, but on the whole, human consciousness, like, are we able to progress our technology so fast because we're opening inwardly at that much of an exponential rate as well? I don't know, but it's a very interesting time we live in. Like you said, our, what were our parents conversing about? And when you look at their world and the, like my parents were born in the 1950s, like technology wasn't doubling as it is. So maybe conscious expansion wasn't rapidly expanding as it is. So that's what I think we live in a very fascinating time. I think it's truly a blessing. I mean, never before have humans, according to my delusional point of view, been so supported by nature, the universe, whoever, and saying like, you, you live on purpose. Like you find you, like you're, it's do that. Mm. Not you worry about that saber toothed tiger coming at you, or you worry about another tribe of people, you know, violently taking over and maybe killing you for your crops or whatever. So fascinating time for sure. Mm. I, I, I must admit, like I never thought about that in the context that what you just shared, like, you know, what I know to be true and, and what I see with our clients is that the more that someone uh, activates and, and learns to master their inner game, as we call it, the more that their outer game has to change to reflect their new internal state of beliefs and being. And it's very much a combination of, of head, heart and hand, mind, body, soul. But I've never thought about it in that context when you look at the relationship with technology, you know, like watching the interview with Elon Musk uh, not that long ago uh, and, and what he was talking, he was talking about some pretty crazy stuff and that was before he smoked the weed. But 
you know, he, he was talking about like AI and, and what's in store for AI in the future and how at the moment the slowest point or the connection is not so much our mind or not so much technology, but it's the, the fingers yeah. creating that connection. And where AI is going is to uh, where we think something and it like happens or shows up on our phone without us even needing to physically type or touch something in. And so, you know, on the one hand, there's these people concerned or worried that technology is going to outgrow outsmart us. But if we take that back to a concept of what we know around a relationship between inner self and an outer self, inner game and outer game, will technology ever outgrow us or will it be a perfect reflection of the inner changes that we're all making as a society? That's a great question. And the, you know, I noticed when, and I listened to that Elon Musk interview and, and when you brought up the part about like what, what slows us down with technology is like literally how fast our fingers move when it comes to finding information on Google or sharing thoughts as we do through our phone. So when I think about your words of his words, like eventually, like you just think the thought what you want to type and you do it and it's that fast that you don't, you're not limited by your finger speed. That scares me. Yeah. And I, and I sit with that fear, like I reactively, I want to say like, screw that technology. It's going to be taking over our world and just changing things. And yeah, cool. Part of me feels that way. And then I, I get curious, why am I afraid? And I, and I just wonder, like, am I actually afraid of going deeper in my inward journey? If, if technology is a match of it and, and, and if you allow the match to be matched, maybe it can actually support us and accelerate how much deeper we go and how much faster we go is, you know, my fear of the new technology, is it more so like, Oh, that, that would be scary to like go inward to myself that much. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm confused on technology and how I actually feel about it. I, mate, I'm, I'm going to have some weird ass dreams when I uh, go to sleep tonight based off the back of this conversation. Yeah, maybe uh, this is a dream. <laughs> this is not even happening, possibly. So, mate, um, a couple of things. First of all, uh, we haven't kind of really delved into your comeback game. You usually like to get into the heads and the hearts and the minds of our guests and kind of find out, like, what was the biggest adversity that they kind of had to overcome to the journey where they are now? Like, what was yours? If you look back in your life, like, what was that biggest adversity? Yeah, you know... Um... I'll give you two answers, one inner, one outer. Uh, my inner would be my, my inner critic. You know, the, and, and that goes back to the time I start doing, uh, or dare I say, just before I start doing comedy videos, you know, the adversity of let me do it anyway, even though I know I'm going to face this ferocious onslaught of my inner critic. I mean, that doesn't feel good. But to avoid my inner critic would mean I avoid doing the thing that it will criticize, which means I don't do anything new. I don't do the comedy videos. I play it safe and let me just play the role of the wise sage and like, cool, it's maybe a part of me, but that's not all of me. So that adversity of the inner critic and, and that's honestly, that's tough. 
the, and I know it's something we all have, yet I don't want to minimize it just because we all have it. Because when it comes to my relationship with the inner critic, like nobody's going to come help me with it. Nobody's going to take any of that weight off my shoulders. Nobody's going to read my mind and say, oh, JP, your inner critic's telling you this, you're being immature and that videos are a bunch of crap. And that's not right, JP. Here's, you know, you're just being amazing. Like nobody can read its mind and interfere with it. So it really is, you know, for me, the adversity of facing my inner critic and dare I say overcoming it, not like it's gone, but I, I'm much less of a slave to it now. That adversity is truly a solo journey. I think it's very much part of the hero's journey where facing the inner critic, that's the dark woods that I go into empty handed by myself, no map, no food. It's, it's cold, it's dark. Bear and it's all, you say that again. Bear grill style. <laughs> For sure. And eventually drinking my own urine and all the things. <laughs> so that, that was, you know, any other adversity I think really pales in comparison to that because I think we, we create our harshest adversity, yeah. which is amazing because that means we are so empowered to overcome that adversity yeah. because it's not some power greater than us creating the adversity it's us creating it. So that means we have the inherent power to create it, which means we have the inherent power to overcome it. And, and then I told you, I'd give you a second one that the one that's more the outer, when I was 18, I was enrolled in the university uh, back where I grew up and not knowing what the hell I wanted to do in life study. And I, but like three months into the university, what I did know was university is not for me. It was an academic route. Nothing interests me. I just felt so low and de-energized about the whole thing. So I decided to, to drop out. And I'm anyway, when I did that, I had a lot of resistance from my parents and, and of course, concern from them, worry from them, uh, and, I, and I know it was all well intended, yet still there was that powerful influence from my parents like that basically said, you're making a mistake, JP. Yet there was this part of me that I hadn't grown to know or trust or understand it all. But there was this part of me saying, no, that's not for me. Mm. And, and, I, and I decided I got to follow that no, not for me. I've got to step out of university, even though I don't know what the step after that is. I have no guarantees that there will be another step, especially at the time. So I was very scared. Yet that adversity of start living on my terms, following the, what I could now say is the guidance of my heart, following my inner call rather than appeasing my parents and following their advice. That, that was adversity and that's had a, a great payoff. That's been very instrumental in helping teach me that things work out for me when I follow my heart. It doesn't mean I know how they'll work out. It doesn't mean they'll work out how I want them to. It doesn't mean 
Yeah, I, I, it doesn't mean I have any pre uh, premonition of how and when, but I do know if I take a step in the direction of my calling, then I need to do that. And whatever the step after that is, is a mystery, but I've got to take that, this step before I can discover the second step. So that adversity has really strengthened my, my sensitivity and my willingness to follow my inner calling. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Just to touch on the first one, do you kind of feel that in some ways that, that, that unconsciously there's part of us that know that if we criticize ourselves the most, we're actually going, like coming back to the creature knowledge, we're actually going to be safe out there in the environment because no one will ever criticize us as much as we possibly can ourselves. So therefore, that criticism is actually not to prevent us from going out and doing something. It's to prepare us to actually go out and do it and succeed. Boom. I like that. I've never thought about that before, yet that makes a lot of sense. That, you know, every, you know, the double-edged sword, we all know the, self-criticism can be a limitation at times. And what I'm hearing you say is there's perhaps a purposeful enhancement at times with self-criticism where it actually equips us. And I know sometimes for me, criticizing myself makes me feel like I'm in control. Like, you know, if someone else criticizes me out of the blue, that can feel like rejection. And like, I didn't see it coming, but it's like, well, if I start criticizing myself, then I feel in control and maybe in like in a way that's crappy. And in another way, uh, piggybacking on what you said, maybe that gives us, gives me a sense of control enough where it's like, I can take action. I feel safe enough in control enough. I'm the one bullying me. Therefore, like nobody else is going to surprise me with it. Hmm. Because imagine not having that though, there'd be almost this sense of arrogance, like, oh, how I could just take on the world, you know, yeah. and, and there wouldn't be that self-awareness or calibration to what, what the external world is, is validating or not within us. Yeah, you know, the, the sword needs a stone to grind against in order to sharpen. Yeah. And of course, the, the stone that you use to sharpen the sword can also make the sword go dull, just depends on how you angle it. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Look, uh, obviously, cautious of time. Just before we wrap up, like, what do you think the best piece of advice you've ever been given is? Yeah, do what scares you. Mm. Like, let yourself be scared. And like you said earlier, like, the emotional reactions to the emotions, like, don't be scared to be scared. Just be scared and take action anyway. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. All right. So for the viewers, listeners out there who hopefully uh, watched and listened to, to the end, uh, how can they find or connect with you? Yeah, uh, on social media, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, all the places. My handle is Awaken with JP. And I, also, you can check out my website, awakenwithjp.com. And I'm also thrilled to say I've just launched my own podcast the Awaken with JP Sears show. So you can find me on iTunes and all the podcast places. And I see you've been running up the ranks quite quickly too and doing all sorts of crazy podcasts and construction sites in the middle of the road. That's the thing, podcast all day, every day. It's, and I've also discovered that people who talk all the time are just making noise, but people who talk all the time while recording it are making podcasts. 
Uh, as something I'm sure neither you nor I can relate to. <laughs> JPC says, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, once again, Bad for this episode, the Comeback Game podcast. Uh, we'd love if you want to hit the share button, like, comment, uh, let us know what you loved. And also let's rally get uh, JP back to uh, back down under. Boom. I love that. Barry, thank you for having me, brother. Thanks so much, dude. Appreciate it.